listening to the coffee hour i'm andy bates i'm sarah golseth it is ash wednesday yes and we have a treat i don't you don't usually get treats on ash wednesday i don't know if ash wednesday is a very treat kind of day but alas alas it's a treat because we get to (laughs) dig into a great text for today we're going to take a look at psalm 130 and hymns and great music Mm -hmm. written based on psalm 130 thanks to concordia university wisconsin for your support of the coffee hour find out more about concordia university wisconsin at cuw.edu live uncommon joining us today chaplain brian hamer active duty navy chaplain chaplain hamer thanks so much for joining us today you have a great article in what does this mean.org and uh looking forward to digging into that as we talk about Ash Wednesday and Psalm 130. Thanks for being our guest on the Coffee Hour this morning. Andy and Sarah, it's good to be with you today. So you wrote this fantastic article. We'll share the link in the, the program notes today as well on Psalm 130 and um, how what Luther did with Psalm 130 in uh, writing a hymn based on this text. Why was it important to Luther that the people have hymns to sing, particularly in the vernacular during the Mass? Andy and Sarah, Luther often talked about his desire in around 1523 to have, and I am quoting Luther here, as many songs as possible in the vernacular, we would say English, which the people could sing during Mass, we would say the divine service, immediately after the gradual and also after the song to and on your stay. And picture in Luther's day, especially the way he grew up, going to a Latin Mass, and you might have a few German parts of the liturgy, maybe a German hymn, and probably a sermon in German, but otherwise it was listening to a language that by and large the peasants did not understand. But in contrast to the radical reformers, especially Karl Pfaff and Zwingli, his solution was never ever to take the, disassemble the organs pipe by pipe or to read in a book on Thursday, hey, we should be doing this. And then all of a sudden, Grandma Jones is receiving the chalice on Sunday when she hasn't received it for the 80 years of her life. For Luther, there was always a method of caution and a certain reformation restraint. And one of the results of that, many, is the hymn that many of our listeners will sing today, Luther's service book 607, what we call a psalm hymn, From Depths of Woe I Cry to Thee. So how does Psalm 130 uh, lend itself to being adaptable into a hymn? Sarah, on a very pragmatic level, from one hymn nerd to another, it's (laughs) short. (laughs) It is only eight verses long in the English numbering. So it begins in the New King James, Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplication. And as it goes, if you can picture a composer looking at the Psalms and picking which ones to that you might be inclined to take the shorter psalms if it's a congregational hymn. But also the language of Psalm 130 is so straightforward. And in good Hebrew fashion, it tends to be very vivid, very visceral, and incredibly real. And in our age of virtual everything, realness for me goes a long way. So the psalmist continues, If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand, but there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. And then the image of the watchman waiting for the morning. So picture Jerusalem, 
picture the watchmen around the walls of Jerusalem and waiting for the morning. And then at the end, O Israel, open the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is abundant redemption. So you really go, along with being short, you go from the law out of the depth, for it is out of the depths of sin and death that we cry to him this Ash Wednesday and every day. But it ends with language of mercy, redemption, to redeem Israel from all of his iniquities. It is also classified as a song of ascent, sometimes called a song of degrees. And the idea of ascent, of course, is as pilgrims would go to Jerusalem, you come over, say, the Mount of Olives, and then eventually you're going up to Jerusalem, into Jerusalem, still going up, and you get to the temple and you get as close as you can to the Holy of Holies of God's presence depending on who you were, whether you're Hebrew or uh, Gentile, male or female or whatnot. And the idea is the closer we get to that Holy of Holies, the closer we are to Christ, our high priest, who entered the most holy place once for all as the mediator of a new covenant. So just looking at this psalm in an English translation, just the psalm alone, not the, the hymn yet, but just looking at the psalm, I mean, it looks... As you pointed out, it's it's, it's short. It, it looks singable as it is. What was Luther's treatment of this text to then make it a hymn? I know what we have, you know, what we sing today. Obviously, he was writing in German, the vernacular then. We have an English translation. I think in our hymnal, it's by Catherine Winkworth, right? Yes, it is. <laughs> so so what was his, his, how did he handle this text? I mean, it looks pretty short and singable already. What What did he do to make it more singable in the vernacular? So this is what we call a metrical psalm. So if you were to take the psalm right out of your Bible, Psalm 130, and try to sing it to your favorite hymn tune, that might work for five or six seconds, <laughs> but simply not designed in English to be sung repetitively. And a fun fact here, as you look through the hymnal, most of our hymns have two or more stanzas. Agreed? Mm-hmm. Yeah, true. Now, a few of them just have one stanza. If you sing a second stanza, you are singing what we call our word of the day, the sequence hymn, because as soon as you repeat the melody, you are now singing a sequence hymn. So Luther took an appropriate tune, and for the text, he simply puts it in a magical form. So very important, this hymn is not a translation of Psalm 130. It is a hymn that very closely tracks and summarizes Psalm 130, and he put it to this tune that begins. And that opening interval. You're singing from depths of woe. So the tune rises effectively from the depths of woe, as do our prayers. So with Luther, the text and the tune are always beautifully matched to one another. Mm-hmm. Did Johann Walter have anything to do with this? I know he was, he worked with Martin Luther quite a bit. Yeah, Johann Walter, for every pastor, you need a good church musician, if at all possible. <laughs> and God's providence in our church history is absolutely remarkable. So we don't have a history, for instance, of, well, the pastors wrote some great hymn text, but they weren't set to music, or conceivably, this is not likely, a composer wrote a good tune, but couldn't find a text to go with it. We have this partnership between pastors and church musicians, and Luther's right-hand man was Johann Walter, not to be confused with all the other people in church history. With 
uh, with, with similar names. And he wrote a slightly more elaborate setting. So with Luther, you have the basic hymn, and we might sing that with organ and in four parts. It was probably sung a little more simply in Luther's day, with the organ introducing it and then the congregation taking it from there, probably uh, from a cappella. Johann Walter, however, adds more parts to it. But you get a chance as you listen to it to listen to the melody. So if our listeners get a chance to go to whatdoesthismean.org, click on Columns, and in the drop-down menu, Lifted Voice, it should pop right up. And one scholar described Johann Walter's setting as follows. The cantus firmus, that means the melody, is very plain and to the point, totally devoid of melismatic figurization or ornamental effects. Sounds a little bit scholarly there. In other words, in plain English, you can actually hear the melody as you should. And then if you know how this text goes with the melody, you can hear how the music beautifully paints that melody in the setting by Johann Walter. So what else was happening uh, around the time that Luther was writing this hymn, that he was uh, studying Psalm 130 and and, uh, writing this hymn for the church? Well, Sarah, have I mentioned that God always provides pastors and church musicians when we need them the most? Yes. Absolutely. (laughs) The years between 1523 and 1526 are absolutely remarkable. And what a joy amidst all the challenges that we have around us in 15 in 2022. Starting next year, it's going to be the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther's Formula Misa, that is the divine service in 1526, 500 years for his Deutsche Messe, his German Mass. And in between those, most of the hymns that we hold near and dear from Martin Luther and then from Paul Sparatus, Salvation Unto Us Has Come, those are mostly dated between 1523 and 1526. So Martin Luther, quite simply, is starting the singing of the gospel. And what could be more important, especially in the Lutheran heritage, than singing the gospel? One person said there are four reasons that Psalm 130 is important, and I think these are the ones that would resonate with Luther as he was compiling this hymn based on Psalm 130. First, it's a hymn of great comfort for Luther during his own trial and all this comfort about singing about how God comes to us even in the midst of our sorrow with his mercy, with his redemption, with the word of forgiveness. Second, and don't miss this, we think of Psalm 130 as a penitential psalm because it is, right? It gives us the words to confess our sins, but it also preaches, if you keep reading, justification by grace through faith in Christ. And Luther made some adjustments from the early editions to expand the hymn to make sure it preached justification. It became, of course, an important funeral hymn sung for the funeral of his supporter, Frederick the Wise, and even sung during Luther's own ceremony as he lay in state in the 1540s. And finally, especially valuable for Ash Wednesday and certainly throughout Lent, teaches and reinforces the meaning of confession and absolution, namely that we confess our sins and receive the word of forgiveness. I want to unpack that a little more when we come back in just a moment about why Psalm 130 and this hymn 
are appropriate for Ash Wednesday and for really the whole season of Lent as well. We're talking with Chaplain Brian Hamer, active duty Navy chaplain and author of a wonderful article in whatdoesthismean.org. You can check it out on the Lifted Voice column on whatdoesthismean.org. We'll share the link in the program notes today as well. You're listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. At Concordia University, Wisconsin, we believe you were created for a reason, to use your God-given gifts to help others, to live a life of self-sacrifice in a me-first world, to live a life that's uncommon. Whether you're taking one of 50-plus online programs or learning with us in person on the shores of Lake Michigan, you'll be equipped to make an uncommon impact. Learn more at cuw.edu. Concordia University, Wisconsin. Live uncommon. Welcome back to the Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. Today we're talking with Chaplain Brian Hamer for Ash Wednesday. So we're digging into this great psalm and hymn for Ash Wednesday. I don't know. Can I use the word great on Ash Wednesday? Maybe not. I can? Okay. Um, (laughs) So we're taking a look at Psalm 130 and from depths of woe, I cry to thee. If you've got your hymnal handy, it's 607 in Lutheran service book. Now, Chaplain Hammer, you said you were sharing with us briefly before we went to break how this is appropriate for Ash Wednesday. How, let's unpack that a little bit more. What what makes this hymn or this psalm appropriate for Ash Wednesday and really for the whole season of Lent? Yeah, Andy, this is what we call a penitential psalm. And I hope that many of our listeners this Lent, especially during the uh, midweek services for, through Lent, will be able to hear some sermon series on the psalm, especially the uh, penitential psalms that are about... and. And again, the Holy Spirit did not actually say these are the penitential psalms, because many of them have the language of penitence within them. But about half a dozen or so are generally regarded as penitential psalms, by which we simply mean it gives us the words to confess our sins. So think in terms of somebody going, especially to individual confession, and notice that this first person singular, out of the depth, I have cried to you, O Lord. So it's a psalm, especially for the individual, could you use this hypothetically as an individual confession of sin? And I'm going to suggest, suggest, yes, we could. Out of the depth, I have cried to you, O Lord. And then verse three, for listeners get a chance to go to BibleGateway.com. You can pull up the old English translations, and they really do a super job with verse three such as the old Wycliffe and Tyndale translations, that thou, O Lord, kept a record of what is remiss, O Lord, who it could stand. That is a wonderful way to say, I have these sins and they weigh me down. And even when I'm forgiven, I still can't forget them. But in Christ and in Christ alone, I know that he has borne the wrath for my sins. And while I may remember them and be tempted to carry that guilt, God the Father forgets them, and they are as far away from me in God's eyes as far as the East is from the West. And what a wonderful Lenten theme. Now, fun fact for both of you. Have you noticed what day Good Friday falls on next month? Am I getting too far ahead of you? Ooh. Oh, I got a, I got a cheat sheet on my, uh, well, it's April 8th. No, April 15th. April 15th. How about that? <laughs> Tax day, right? Death and taxes. (laughs) (laughs) 
and I don't know about you two, but nobody keeps a record of what is remit better than the IRS. <laughs> oh, man. So on the very day that we're all thinking in terms, it's almost like the Christian funeral. The law is already there. It's in the casket. You barely even need, you barely need to mention the law because it is so present. Nobody keeps a better record of where we have gone wrong with no mercy, no redemption <laughs> than the IRS. But think in terms of you know, a, a hand coming from heaven, the hand of the very Lamb of God that is nail-pierced, and it's going to the IRS data system, wherever that may be, and it's going to block and delete all of your sins. Thanks be to God. Yes. Well, that's a great picture for this this season of Lent. Can we can we um, dig in a little bit to the actual, the rest of the text of the hymn? How does the rest of the text of the hymn relate to Psalm 130? Um, and this is a public domain hymn, so you can also, if you don't have a hymnal right in front of you, you can go to hymnary.org and you can look at the text there um, as well if you want. But can we can we look through that text a little bit more? Yeah, Absolutely. So briefly from each of the five stanzas, and they do track very closely the five stanzas of the hymn, tracking the eight verses of the actual psalm. So we've already covered how from depths of woe I cry to thee. And interesting that St. Thomas Aquinas actually says that Psalm 130 is to be read in conjunction with the story of the prophet Jonah. Well, did anybody ever cry from the depths of woe more than Jonah as they <laughs> tossed him off the boat? <laughs> right. In trial and tribulation, I love the vivid language here, again from LSB 607, bend down thy gracious ear to me. We cannot come up to him by our own efforts, but he's going to bend down to us. Lord, hear my supplication. And stanza two, thy love and grace alone avail to blot out my transgression for all the things that people have done through the years, indulgences, penance, alleged time in purgatory and so forth to try to blot out our own transgression, only the white baptismal robe that is given by Christ himself. But here it's called the best and holiest deeds must fail, but before thy thee none can boasting stand, but all must fear thy strict demand. And then I think the turning point comes really in stanza three. So don't stop after stanza two, okay? Talk to your pastor and church musician. You want to sing the whole hymn. Stanza three. My hope is, aha, uh -huh, in the Lord and not in mine own merit. There's your justification by grace through faith, but not just using that phrase over and over again as a cliche, but actually preaching and singing it into the ears of the people. And this hope rests upon his faithful word to them of contrite spirit, so think of the other psalm that many of us are praying today, namely Psalm 51, and for God to create in us a new and contrite heart, that he is merciful and just. And I love that couplet between merciful and just. He is merciful enough not to punishment for our sins. And just this once, it's actually just not to punish someone because Christ has borne that punishment for us. And then stanza four, that hope may tarry through the night until the morning waken, but my heart shall never doubt his might, nor count itself forsaken. So think of that watchman again, standing on the heights of old Jerusalem and waiting for that peace of the morning to come where he can say all is well. And so in stanza four now, O Israel, trust 
in God your Lord, born of the Spirit and the Word. So I think Luther is inserting um, an allusion to baptism there, Spirit and the Word, and wait for his appearing. And then finally, in stanza five, we have that hand of mercy that never will abandon us nor waver. At the same nail-pierced hands that paid the price for our sins continue to hold us, God's baptized people, this Lent through the Easter season and always, even to the end of day. So not only did Luther write a great hymn on this text that we get to sing in Ash Wednesday and Lenten services and, and, and throughout the year, but especially during this time of year, um, but others took this hymn and built upon it as if you could build something <laughs> like as if you could improve upon it. But um, who are the other composers that have written pieces based on this hymn? And it's funny, Andy, you have to actually pick very carefully. You'd be amazed what I have to leave on the uh, the editor's floor because <laughs> I try to pick which ones. I narrowed it down this time around to a city that to my utter shame I've never even been to, namely Dresden. And I picked uh, basically one or two per century. So we talked about Luther and Walther, the new one to me from the 16th century. And uh, somebody help me with the pronunciation here. Matthias Le Maestre, M-A-I-S-T-R-E. However you say that, he worked in Dresden. And he has a setting that our listeners can, can check out that's also a little bit different. But you can still find the melody. And what you see as you move from the 16th to the 18th century is we tend to add. So we're going to add instruments, we'll add harmony, we'll add other inventive compositional uh, procedures, and that will all flower in someone I did not cover in this particular issue, but he will be back in a future issue, namely J.S. Bach, who has an entire cantata. That's about 15 minutes of uh, four or five movements. Usually goes one movement per stanza based entirely on the hymn. So in brief, from Luther right around 1523 to the death of Bach, 1750, the Lord gave us absolutely magnificent treasures in church music based on this hymn alone, not to mention many others. Mm -hmm. Was uh, uh, Heinrich Schutz was one of those that wrote on it too, wasn't he? Absolutely. Heinrich Schutz who was born in 1585, and that's another fun fact. Martin Luther, born in 1483. Goethe, born in 1585. Bach was born in 1685. And that's part of that unbroken continuity, at least from Luther to Bach. And we call those three the class of 85, even though we have to round Luther up to the year 1485 uh, to uh, to make that happen. And he worked in Dresden, of course, and he wrote it as part of what they would actually call a couple music, that is, table music. That is to say, special music for a feast or festival that could actually be uh, sacred or secular. And we think of the concert hall in the church as having two very different groups of musicians and text and music. But in Dresden, in the days of Schutt, if, some, if something great happened, they would write a te deum. Hmm. We praise thee, O God, mm-hmm. and sing it in the court without ever a thought that this is not tolerant or that this violates the separation of church and state. And thank God for Heinrich Schutt. <laughs> Can we dig into Bach a little bit in our last, I don't know, two or to three me, minutes? Yeah. <laughs> can you can you give us a little taste of, of Bach? I've sung this chorale uh, or this cantata. It's glorious. Uh, can you give us a little taste of what, of what Bach did with this hymn? 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And we we'll have to save most of that for a future time. But yeah. I can be John the Baptist and a pointing finger to one much greater than I. <laughs> there we go. I assure you. <laughs> so he, he takes this hymn. And then in his cantata, he, he tends to do one of two things. Sometimes he'll take just the straight hymn text itself. And so the hymn text, sometimes he will insert arias and recitatives that echo what is in that text. And typically you would have a wonderful opening chorus, then a series of recitatives and arias from the soloist, then often ending with the chorale which is wonderful because then the choir, as you know, only has to rehearse one complicated movement and one fairly simple movement. And guess what? You have a clear sense of melody that you can associate with the text. And when the congregation sings that final chorale or when the choir sings that chorale, the congregation is informally invited to join in as you obviously have done, which Mm -hmm. is great. I always learn something when we talk with Chaplain Hamer. Obviously, I mean it's an educational segment, but I always learn something. I, you know, I knew that that congregational singing was came out of the Reformation. I didn't realize how much it was a kind of a foundation of the the Reformation too. It's fascinating. Thank you so much, Chaplain Hamer, for spending some time with us this morning. Great insights, and uh, we'll we'll point uh, we'll we'll share the link in the program notes as well today to your article and around the word. What does this mean? org. Check out the Lifted Voice uh, column there by Chaplain Hamer. Always good content there to uh, to remind us what the church's song is all about. Thanks so much for spending some time with us on the Coffee Hour. Blessed Ash Wednesday to you and those you serve. Thank you, Andy. Thank you, Sarah. You've been listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah is a production of KFUO. To support The Coffee Hour and KFUO Radio, visit KFUO.org. You can also text KFUO to 41444 or send an email to gifts at KFUO.org. And you can call us at 800-844-0524. KFUO. Christ for you. Anytime. Anywhere. Anywhere.